Good morning, church. <clears throat> oh, some Sundays are a bit more athletic on worship time than others. This is one of those, so sheesh. I, uh, I'll take a minute to catch my breath here. Holy smokes. For those of you that don't know, uh, uh, normally uh, Mike and I share preaching duties, and uh, Leah shares uh, worship song-picking duties with nobody. She just has to kind of put up with whatever it is that we produce. So we try to get our stuff together, and she picks songs that apply to the message. And uh, then we, uh, they, they tend to go a lot more than they don't, which is wonderful, and it makes sometimes the transition into the sermon wonderful. This is one of those, because uh, physically we played songs today that are very taxing for me, because I'm uh, maybe not the best guitar player or singer. I don't know what it is. Uh, but it, it's... Very apt that we come to this chapter, and I walk up to the podium trying to catch my breath, as I'm sure Nehemiah feels the same way. You'll see why as we get through this chapter. But obviously, this has been a whirlwind of a book. Lots of ups and downs, great things, maybe some not-so-great things, lots of frustrating things, necessary evils, maybe we could say. But now we come to the final chapter of Nehemiah, and um, it's, I don't, uh, it's a Maybe in some regards, not what we would expect for the final chapter of a book that maybe seems like such an encouragement, such an awesome experience to, to end in the way that it is. And if you're thinking, I can't wait till he's going to read this, what's going to happen? Awesome. That's the kind of attitude I want you to have. It's excited for the word because today, in my opinion, is a, I wouldn't say it's an easy sermon to preach um, without making a bunch of finger wagging and I told you so's or be careful churches which we've probably all heard 100,000 times, but you're going to hear a little more of that today as we wrap it up, hopefully into some applications that are a bit more personal and meaningful than just stop sinning. There's been a lot of talk through this book, act right. Uh, Leah hinted at this. The goal is not just to act right. Nehemiah wants their hearts to change. But it's tough to tell if someone's heart's changed or if they've just gotten tired of hearing about it. And so they, they start acting and looking the part. So I call this God sustainer of the, st- the saints, um, as, we, as we cap this off, and maybe it feels like a little bit of a low point, just know that we're here today in this room reading this word, worshiping and praying together because God sustains. Not because Nehemiah worked so hard, but because God sustains. And I say the saints because there's a, a chosen few that will persevere for all time. Perseverance of the saints is a critical thing. And what we see here is not because of hard work or not good efforts. And chapter 13 will hopefully hammer that nail all the way in when we see what their best efforts uh, netted them. So with that, let's go ahead and read together. We'll be in Nehemiah 13. If you have your Bible, follow along. If not, it should be uh, hopefully in front of you some, some way or another online or here in the, uh, in the auditorium. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. At noon, as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem, 
And I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers. And I brought back there the vessels of the house of God, with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan the son of Zachor, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of good and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us in this city? Now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days I also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half their children spoke the language of Ashdod. And they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters or their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God. And God made him king over all of Israel. Nevertheless, Foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sambalot the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus, I cleanse them from everything foreign. And I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. Let's pray. The oh Lord, coming out of chapter 12, I know I'm not alone in thinking, hey, it sounds like they finally are on the right track. Maybe they've learned their lesson, taken the history that's been you know, lived for, for centuries prior 
and, and put it to good use and, and, and focused on you and got it together. But we see here, Lord, that it's the same as it ever was. There's nothing new under the sun. This is also in your word, Lord. Help us understand as we read this story that in many ways it is ancient history and in many ways it's happening in the world around us today. We love to get together. We love to do things for you, Lord. I honestly can say that aloud. The people that we serve as a church, as a family, as a city, as believers, we love the work that we do. And it's a blessing to us and to those that we serve, Lord. But help us not to fall into the trap of laziness and ease of life and and work a little bit and then backslide a long way off to do things the way we want to do them, Lord. It's not about earning your favor. It's about following our Lord. That's a much different thing, Lord. Help us to, to put you where you need to be, Lord. Wrench our hearts and, and keep convicting us every day, every hour, every second to keep focused on you and your glory. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen. All right. Final chapter. Uh, we've preached a lot of final chapters. If you've been here for a while, we talk, we, we're doing a very, I guess, simple and straightforward preaching for simple and straightforward fellows. We take a book of the Bible, we exposit it straight through directly. The context makes itself very easy to d- dissect. And we finished many books in the last three years. Typically, they're goodbyes and reminders. We get these last chapters. If it's a letter from Paul, hey, one last thing. I love you guys. Take care. Say hey to so-and-so. I'm sending so-and-so. Anyway, peace be with you. Take it easy. This chapter is not that way. This, it's a final summary of life a short time after chapter 12. Um, and it's not the most uplifting chapter. You wouldn't be faulted for thinking this is a recap from earlier, that maybe he's just retelling the tale of woe that they suffered together. Uh, and there are people, scholars that argue that, that this isn't really a new situation, it's just the same old stuff. But it, it is... Uh, in context and after much study, I guess, we, could, we would say that this is basically, while sounding very repetitious, is something new. And it's difficult to maybe comprehend that they would so rapidly fail, but that said, we shouldn't be surprised. We talk about this a little bit in our small group. When we look at the world around us today and we think of the world that existed back then, it's the same old story. God does something amazing. We're blessed immensely. We give thanks to God. Then we immediately start to forget about that because what has he done for us lately? And we go back to the things that we think are best and God is is shoved right out of our lives. It starts with on that day. Uh, An easier way to think of this would be eventually. Now, I'm not trying to get into the Bible translation game, but there's a lot of words that we make, that that we, we translate as literally as possible so that we're not putting a lot of thought into it. But for the sake of study, the specific that day that they're referencing was more of a euphemism for after a while or eventually. The context is some time has passed, but not just a couple of days. This is likely a few years later or something on those lines. But effectively, the events of Nehemiah 12 would have been history. And I say that with a loose term of history, not ancient history, not like we have to go back to read the scrolls. There are people that remembered it, but it wouldn't have been something that was like, well, it's just yesterday. Remember when we were singing? Remember the people heard from all around? That would have been a tale that was being told. Uh, and maybe had been embellished and things like that. But this is something new. And we see them going once again back to the law, rereading the law of Moses. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, exactly what we saw earlier in Nehemiah. However, this time, there's no record of the people asking for it. They begged earlier. The Lord was working in their lives. to Oh, let me move you. Let me stir you. And they're like, read to us. And they did. And they tore their garments. And they were, were blown away by this. This is a staunch reminder of the covenant. 
This is a reminder that God wants his people separate. They are not doing that. They are not doing anything that God wants them to do. And now we're going to read the law of Moses. The beatings will continue until morale improves. That's kind of where Nehemiah is. You guys got to do better. And apparently he didn't get it the first time. So I'm going to read it a little bit louder until you get it, right? Now we all know this stuff doesn't work, but Nehemiah's at his wits end. And if you don't believe me, just think about what we just read. Somebody, that, and, and prior to this, to give Nehemiah a lot of credit, he has been quite composed. If you recall earlier, it said uh, he took some time with himself and went to the Lord in prayer. We're not seeing as much of that here. We're seeing Nehemiah also getting a little bit frustrated, losing his path a little bit, doing something rash and saying, oh God, please remember the good I'm trying to do for these people, right? But he's, he's frustrated. He's really frustrated. What he has tried to do is now coming apart at the seams. Now, before this, we see some events leading to this latest reckoning. He's telling what was happening that led them to this sorrowful state, if you will. Eliashib, a priest, was appointed over the chamber of God's house. But he was also related to Tobiah. And if you remember that name, he's a villain from earlier in the book. He and Sambalot and the gang were actively trying to thwart the work. They were attacking, threatening to kill the people building the walls. Now we've got a, a, a relative of Tobiah as chief priest or the appointed overseer priest of the house of God. And he, inside the house of God, makes a special room for Tobiah. Right in the house of God. Now, there are some things that are pretty on the nose with regards to idolatry. This would be one of them, right? If you, if you leave the church and you come back and like, well, there's a new pastor and he put it, went ahead and, you know, hold up a, his a great uncle in the back who, you know, runs a brothel but needs a place to stay. We'd be like, what's, what's going on here? Well, he needed a place to stay. He's a pretty good guy, and he's a big mucky muck. Like, I'll bet he is. Get him out of the church. He doesn't belong here. That's where Nehemiah is. What in the world is going on? But guess what? If Tobiah is there, guess who's not there? God. All the things that were prescribed for that room, all the various artifacts. And Granted, this is about the law. That's why it wouldn't necessarily apply to us perfectly, but there was a place for everything in the temple. And Eliashim said, well, let's get that stuff out of here. No one's really contributing that much anyway, which we learn later. So these, these things are kind of empty. And, you know, Tobiah could use the space, and he'd be right in the middle of the town, and it's secure, and we've got guards, and it's upkept. It's perfect for him. So they buy him some new furniture, and they move him in. Now, Nehemiah wasn't around for this part. This part has echoes of Moses on the mountain, right? I mean, it sounds so familiar. The difference is the king they met with. Moses went to the top of the mountain to meet with God. Nehemiah went back to meet with Artaxerxes, but effectively they're both away, and while they're away, literally all hell breaks loose. I mean, it's terrible behavior. Satan's running rampant, changing everything back, reverting things. But the similarities between these two events are striking. This is not coincidental. Moses was not the pinnacle of existence either. Moses' experience was a foreshadowing of Christ. Now we see kind of a lesser foreshadowing. But a very rinse and repeat, a strong leader doing strong leader things, even if they're appointed by God to do it, cannot save anybody. They can't save a city. They are only to be looked up to in the degree by which they serve the Lord. And even that's probably not even worth talking too much about at the end of the day. We see Moses, and everybody holds Moses in high esteem. They call the book of Moses. Nehemiah is kind of repeating that. The same outcome. <laughs> But Moses couldn't do it. What's Nehemiah think he's going to do? Well, it's the same nonsense. We'll do it better. Nehemiah finally returns and sees all this blasphemy. I mean, just absolute 
by the law standards, anarchy. So what's he do? <laughs> Time to clean house. Throws all Tobiah's stuff out. Get out of here. And then a very subtle thing, but notice that Nehemiah orders the chambers to be cleansed. He can't cleanse them himself as it would be unlawful. That's a duty that's prescribed specifically in law for certain tribes. So Nehemiah is still trying to do it right. Get this garbage out of here. Get the priests back in here. They need to cleanse themselves and they need to rededicate this whole thing. We got to do exactly what we just did because of this nonsense. And he says, after that, bring everything back that belongs in here. All the different storage containers and the first fruits and the offerings, it all goes back. But it's not over. As they bring all the stuff back in, I'm imagining this is where it's like, bring all the offerings back in. And then comes, you know, two little crates. Like, what's all this? Where's the offerings? Well, people haven't been contributing. Well, this means the Levites and the singers are back to work in their field. They have to have food. They have to have money. If you're not contributing at the, that the, you talk about bivocational or monovocational, these guys are ideally not bivocational. They're supposed to be there full-time work, and they can't, they got to get out. So now they're bivocational, which means sometimes the, the temple's left unattended. So Eliashib took over. They're out of here. The singers aren't coming around as much anymore. They got work to do. They need provisions, and the people aren't stepping up, and Nehemiah takes the officials to task. And this question, man, why is the house of God forsaken? Oof. Not a question you want to be asked. No answers recorded, but I bet it's a bunch of excuses and stammering. If I was a betting man, that's what it would be. Well, you know, things were tough when you left. Nobody wanted to hear. And you remember you contributed so much, but then you were gone. And Nehemiah puts everyone back to work, and the ties start rolling in. We had an agreement. We had a covenant. Do what you said you would do. That's all I'm asking of you. I can almost hear it. Now, I've heard this before in my life. <laughs> Get it together. You made a deal. See, see, see it through. Be a man. Stand up. Do the things you'll say you do. That's integrity. That's all he wants. You agreed to do it, do it. At the same time, we see Nehemiah putting people back in charge over the tithes, right? So part of this, there's a, a, multiple pieces of this that are falling apart, right? Oh, well, there's no money, so then the priests leave. Well, then the people that count the tithes leave because they don't need to count the tithes, and the rooms are empty, and the money's in, going down. And, and I bet you that, that uh, to, Tobiah said, listen, if you give me a room there, I'll contribute some money to the temple. Well, that sounds good. At least we can keep the temple up. And then pretty soon, it's another business funded by people that have no business funding the house of the Lord. And then after this bit, we see Nehemiah's first plea for remembrance. I think it's really powerful how Nehemiah wants God to remember this. There's a degree of embarrassment and failure. I, I can't help but read this idea that like I've worked so hard and things are going so good, but clearly it didn't stick. But it's a clear understanding that his work is good and it was for God. We talked about this in a small group today. He's working his best for God, with God that brought him here, and he knows that only God will sustain this. There is no hope. If you ever thought for a minute that Nehemiah was under any delusions, I'll bet those were shattered on this trip. Y'all are a mess, is what he's saying to these folks. Are you kidding me? We had people on the gates. Remember? <laughs> what is going on? What about the deal? The law, fine, but the covenant, I mean... It's only a few years old, and you've already completely abandoned everything we swore to do. And there's no coincidence there. Everything in the covenant that was listed out, we now see exa examples of being broken. But wait, there's more. Judah's open for business for seven days a week. Sabbath, right out the door. Not just a few people, it's full tilt money making. The city is open for business. And Nehemiah is appalled at the lack of care given to the Sabbath. 
And he reminds them of their ancestors and how this ended, <laughs> as if they needed to be reminded, right? But this is another one of those things that we see today. Oh, we went through a really tough time. Oh, Lord, be with me. Help me. And then the Lord helps you. And you're like, great, back to normal. Now, where was I? Right? I'll call on God again when times get tough, right? He saved us before. He'll save us again. That's the mentality here. Nehemiah is saying, let's not play that game with God. Our ancestors did that. They went into exile. What comes after exile, you guys? <laughs> Exiled from earth, life. We probably don't want to tempt an all-powerful God anymore, ever. And from this, we see bold steps are taken. Nehemiah orders the gates to be closed on the Sabbath. He then appoints guards at the gate. He threatens the vendors that are camping outside the walls, hoping for a moment of weakness. We'll just wait out here. Someone might sneak open and let the door in or throw some money over the wall. I don't know, but we're going to be ready to go. And then finally, he has the Levites cleanse and guard the gates as a holy duty. He stationed them there. Stay here as part of your duties to keep this place holy. Keep these gates closed on the Sabbath. And then even bolder steps were taken, right? That one got a little iffy. He came, if you remember, he threatened to go down there and lay hands on him, right? Get lost or I'm going to come down there. And you don't want me to come down there. All right, all right, all right, we'll go. They probably know Nehemiah. He's kind of a mucky muck. He's been around for a minute. If you recall, he was the head of the group that was fighting with one hand and building with another. Something tells me you don't, people don't mess with Nehemiah very much. So when he said, get lost or I'm going to come down there, they said, all right, we'll get lost, we'll get lost. But then we see him... It's noted that intermarriage is back in fashion. This was another big part of the covenant. We are not going to intermarry again. And there's an interesting danger noted about language here. I find this to be really enthralling. It says that, uh, yes, they were intermarrying and, uh, it, 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 and all this kind of mess, but um, one of the things they noted is uh, half their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they couldn't even speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. So as they were intermarrying, their offspring weren't able to read the law. They wouldn't have understood any of the scripture. They were learning individual languages of the people they were intermarrying with. And this is where we see Nehemiah literally at his wit's end, and he resorts to violence. There's really no way to say it. He said he confronts them, he curses them, beats some of them, and pulled out their hair. Well, I mean, I guess there's a time and a place for everything. I'm not saying this is the way we ought to be doing it. Uh, Certainly not advocating this kind of treatment. But you could see the frustration in Nehemiah. I don't know how to make it any clearer what this means. This is disaster for them. Oh, it's not that big of a deal. Anybody ever heard this before? Where you see something and you know in their life or something like that, it's, it's, it's destroying them. It's eating them from the inside out. It's ruining their life or their family. And you say, this is not good. But they're like, oh, it's fine. It's not that big of a deal. I can handle this. I've dealt with worse I can balance this. Uh, you know, I'm working towards it or whatever else, and you're thinking you're not. I've seen what's happened. It's never going to end well. You are not going to square the circle yourself. You cannot do it. This is where Nehemiah is. He is willing to rip people's hair out, curse them, assault them, to convince them that this will kill them. You are standing in opposition to God's law. That is certain death. A few follicles in hand here may save your life. Please get it together. Snap out of this nonsense. Do what you said you would do. Stop breaking covenants. This is the least of your worries, by the way. If you have any doubt about it, fast forward a little bit and read about what happened to Christ on the cross. He bore the wrath of God. There are no words for this, but it would be, it would be punishment beyond anything. Having your hair ripped out is a walk in the park. Having your hair ripped out is like 
winning a lottery compared to what Christ dealt with on the cross. Nehemiah appreciates this. The wrath of God is no joke, and you guys are dancing right into the midst of it. And he makes them retake their oaths and then runs off a conspirator. He sees another guy here is probably, well, remember, I've done the math of this. And he associates him to uh, one of the sons of Jehida, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, by the way, related to Tobiah, was the son-in-law of Sambalat, the Horonite. I mean, you talk about like everybody, this, this dude represents all the people that want to thwart the work of God. Here he is standing here arguing with him about an intermarriage or whatever else, so he chased him from me. Now, I don't know how he did that, but I bet it was a little bit easier if he had bloody knuckles and a bunch of hair in his hand. What was that? You know, I'll go, yeah, I bet so. Get, get lost. And then after this, we see Nehemiah's second plea for remembrance, right? I can relate to this. I can be kind of a hothead. I've gotten a lot better in recent years, but when I was younger especially, I went from zero to 100 real quick a lot of times, made bad decisions, reacted more than responded, all that kind of stuff. But we, I, so I relate to this like, and then he went in there and he's ripping hair out. And then he's followed by, remember them, my God, because they've desecrated the priesthood and the covenant. Like, I'm trying to justify how mad I am and what I'm doing. Remember me, God. I'm doing what I'm doing. Remember it for good. I swear I'm trying to be good here, but they're making it really, really hard. So let's talk about points to ponder from today. Until we're called home, we must do our best. We must do our best. That's different for everybody. Until we're called home, we must keep growing. Until we're called home, we must work together. And until we're called home, we must be sustained by and for God. It's supposed to be a slash there. That disappeared in translation. By and for God. So we must do our best. I'll tell you right now, there is a difference between perfection and excellence. If there's anything that I say that's not going to be scripture today, let this rattle inside your head. I am not saying we must be perfect until we're called home. We must do our best. Church, let's strive for excellence in all we do, not perfection. Not get caught up on, oh, that could be slightly better if we just had more money, if we just had more time, if we just had more congregants, if we just, just, no, no, no. What do we have? What has God given us? And what can we do with it? Let's do the best we can do. Like Nehemiah, we should pray that God remembers our work for good. We're not saved by those good works. I want to make it really clear. We're not doing our best to earn favor with God or to to get a few more marks that might pull us out of hell. That's not what's happening here. You are saved or you are not saved. That's God's decision. He's going to work in our lives in that regard. But once we are saved, we better be producing good works. Our salvation begets good works. If it doesn't, it might not be salvation. Now, that's not a popular perspective, but know that. If you're struggling, like, man, I'm not doing any good works, then be in prayer. Strive for excellence. Don't get caught up in perfection. Strive for excellence. We can do our best. There's nothing that stops us from a church from doing our best. Nothing. It may not be as good as somebody else by the way the world measures it, but if it's our best and it's for God, that's all we can do. Until we're called home, we must keep growing. And not just any growth will do, we need godly growth. If there's ever a chapter that should remind us of the kind of growth that is beneficial, it's this one. Uh, Jerusalem has grown. But then the walls came up and they restricted trade on the Sabbath and they stopped intermarriage. And it was probably a smaller, less, you know, there wasn't much, as much flow of money, maybe not as business-oriented as it once was, because it's been, 
It's been necessarily retarded a bit by the law in order to keep things focused on God. But they struck all that. No, 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 we're going to grow again. Let's get the city going again. Let's bring some of these outsiders in. Let's marry some of these, you know, foreign women in here. And let's get, let's open, we're open seven days a week again. More money. Bigger businesses. Bigger presence. The world now knows us once again. We're going to become a, a city on a hill. A trade empire. No. Not the kind of growth that they needed to have at this time. They should have been growing in the Word. They should have been doubling back down in their efforts on the law, rereading some of these old scriptures, starting to talk about, hey, what's this Messiah that's talked about? What about this prophecy? What's this mean? Let's think about that. I think there might be a coming Savior. Their lives would have been changed. It could have been led to God with deeper belief, but they didn't. They set all that aside and chose to grow their own way. So not any growth will do. We have to have godly growth. And there's no standing still in our calling. Maybe attempting to say, uh, well, I can just kind of hold for a while. There's a line from uh, Shawshank Redemption. Get busy living or get busy dying. It's pretty apt here. You're either growing or you're dying. You're not going to get to a level and hold steady. That's not what we're called to do. There's no examples of that. Always up or down. It's not a small task and it's not easy. I'll tell you right now, someone's been doing this for a while. It is taxing. It's exhausting. But we talked about this a little bit in our small groups. There are moments in the midst of this, like when the city is finalized and they put the choirs up and you're standing in the middle of a city and you hear 50,000 people, you can hear from miles away. And you have a brief moment knowing unequivocally deep in your soul that it's all worth it. Now, there may be a lot of other times you're thinking, I'm about to throw in a towel on this, God. I'm about to throw in a towel. I'm heading into the furnace and you better be with me. And then lo and behold, he's there. But there are times when it's great and there are times when it's not, but we have to keep growing. It's a delusion to think that where we are as believers, as a church, as a family, as a city, that we can get to a place, plateau, and have done enough. That's it. Punch my ticket. I've, I, I've preached to 15,000 people, and that's my number for the year, and we're good. That stuff is nonsense. We're not going to see that example here at all. There's going to be times when it's big and explosive, and there are times when it's not. But our growth is not about numbers or money or time spent, people saved. That's not the number that we need to talk about. Those are somewhat good to measure. But I'll bet you when Nehemiah left at the end of 12, he was like, that's 50,000 in the books, baby. All saved. Did you hear those people singing? We did it. We did it, church. We saved them all. Jerusalem's God's city, finally. Let me just run back real quick, talk to our Xerxes, pop back over fires burning, you know, animals, dogs and cats living together. It's, it's mass hysteria. It's a nightmare, total nightmare. And he's out of his mind. I thought we were good. You guys aren't good. You're like worse than before. And I know you're worse than before because we just talked about how you know you're wrong and you're still doing it. <laughs> we got to grow the way God wants us to grow. And until we're called home, we're going to work together. I mention this because we're here today because God wants a church. This isn't some construct that a bunch of people sat around and said, the best way probably to accomplish the word is to just form a group and we'll call it a church. No, this is described by God's word. What we're doing today is godly. And thus it's good because we know it glorifies God when we gather and praise him together. This is the manner in which he wants us, the saints, to collaborate. We group together. We serve underneath the headship of Christ alone. Seems pretty easy on paper. I'll argue that it is pretty easy on paper, right? It's really, really difficult to make it go. 
This benefits us in a myri- in myriad ways. I mean, there's it's a, it's immeasurable. If I think back in my life and I start listing things off, I probably will run out of time before I could talk about the benefits that being in a church and having friends and family in a church have had for me. We were talking a little bit before before service. You, you finally get to church, whatever brought you there, and then you're thinking, oh, here we go again, or whatever. And then in hindsight, you look back and you just see the Holy Spirit one day grab you and drag you through this little pathway that led you to this church with a pastor that wasn't even, wasn't even the pastor of that church, but was a guest. And he said something that changed your... And you look back and you're like, man, that's incredible. But if it wasn't for... All these people doing all these things, serving God. God did it, but he used people in churches gathered together to, to, to show me how he wants it done. We were able to grow faster and better together. If we want to impact the kingdom, we're best not to go it alone. That's what it really boils down to. Nehemiah tried really hard to get people around him to do it, but at the end of the day... He was doing a lot of this himself. He was the governor. He was overseeing. He was putting people in place, and he was ordering and commanding and this, that, and the other. And kind of, you know, I had Ezra there helping him out a little, but at the end of the day, it was a lot of work, and it didn't stick because the church wasn't really built. There was a gathering of people that were doing what they were told. We're seeing the benefits, having an emotional moment. This is so cool. It's a miracle what God has done. Who is God? I don't, don't really know. I don't know, but this is so great, and I'll sing whatever you want me to sing but I still don't quite get it. When I look at our church here and I think about what we want to do, how we want to work together, and we want to grow in a godly way together, I'm fine with God taking the time he's going to take. If you ever wonder why we're not up here praying and begging for people to come in and trying to give away gift cards and that kind of stuff, God will bring people here in his time and in his manner. If it's not God bringing them in here, then I don't know that we want them in here, to be perfectly frank. God needs to be moving people to this place. In his time. In the meantime, we reach out and let people know as best we can, despite the times on the websites being wrong. Thank you for your patience on that, working through it, that we are here and we want to help and serve and train and study and do this together. We will work together because God wants a church. And lastly, until we're called home, we must be sustained by God. I call this the saint of the saints because it's tempting to take over and do it our way. I'll be the first to admit. If you talk to my family, my wife, daughter, my father, friends, I struggle with this a lot. I'm a fixer. I'll take it from here. What do we do wrong? How do I, how do I learn from this? And this chapter shows that we cannot do it ourselves. Now, I don't want to say that this is a book about Nehemiah's headstrongness or any of that sort of thing, but there is certainly a degree of that. And if little else, we see Nehemiah humbled drastically by this last chapter. His actions alone, I think, speak of a man that has completely, is completely floored by what he thought was going to be okay. Comes back and just cannot believe the blasphemy he's seeing. This chapter should show us that we cannot do it ourselves. It may be tempting to take it over and do it my way, but that's not wise. If my way happens to be God's way, well, that's a blessing. And I can say that's the result of a regenerated heart that's starting to take the word of God and implant it in there, and it's starting to spill out a little bit. That's fine. But even if you've been in the word and you've been saved for 20 years, take your actions and weigh them against the, weigh them against the word. I don't know how to do that very well. Talk to people in your church. Well, I'm not a member of the church. Then join a church. 
We just talked about those bullets. Let's do it together. Let's grow together. Things like this become so much easier in a body of believers that's focused on God's work. This isn't just a, a hunting club that we've conveniently called a church where we get together and high-five and talk about fun things. We do that. We high-five all the time. Well, not really, but we love being together. It's fun to talk about things, but it, there's a much bigger focus here, a much bigger focus here. And that focus is we must rely on God for everything. I mean everything. Money, time, air conditioning, parking lots, people, resources in the city, contention with other congregations, all that. If it comes up, we rely on God. What does the word say? What's the wisest counsel we can get here? Who else could we talk to? How can we figure this out that we can take the right actions and make sure that the things we're doing to sustain ourselves as people, as believers, and as a church are from God? And we can persevere doing good works for, by, and with God. So what about us? Questions here. Questions for us as a church, but individually as well. This will be the last slide. After this, we're going to pray. Now let these questions rattle around your head a little bit. Are we doing our best? Our best. Not the best. Not the absolute best, but our best. And if not, what's in our way? What is preventing us from doing our best? Are we growing? If not, what's hampering our growth? What's keeping us from from being able to say we're growing? Are we fellowshipping? If not, where's our effort spent? And finally, are we being sustained by God? And if not, who's our go-to? Fair questions. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we close out the, uh, the book of Nehemiah, it ends in some ways perhaps on a very sour note, Lord, but um, as we read this chapter, and we, of course, know how the Bible carries on from here, Lord, and we see that this note, while seemingly may be very sour here, kind of a bummer at the end of this chapter, how everything kind of unraveled and he had to reset it all again, Lord, there's a couple things here that really stand out. One is we should know we can't do it ourselves. We need you 100% of the way. But likewise, Lord... Whatever has happened, whatever sin has been committed, however far we have fallen, whatever degree of law we have violated, Lord, it's not too much for you to overcome. We believe, Lord, that what you paid on that cross takes care of everything, all the sins of mankind. So, Lord, we study this and we we try to apply it to our lives. Help us to apply it fundamentally to one thing, Lord, and that is that the work that you have done is greater, far greater than anything we could ever do. Your grace is is immeasurable, Lord, and you have paid what needs to be paid, Lord. So if there's folks here today that as, as we ask those questions are thinking to themselves, I don't even know where to begin. I'm so far from where I need to be. I I couldn't even set foot in a church, I don't think, without catching on fire. Lord, that's a lie from the pit of hell. And that if they are hearing today the the truth of Scripture, Lord, that it can change hearts and minds right now. Right now. Lord, we know that you are enough. And you are totally uh, capable of everything. You sustain the saints. Because of your work in our hearts and lives, we are able to persevere through all of this, Lord. Help us to take as an example, perhaps, the tale of Nehemiah in this regard, the the, the things that happened in his life and see 
how we can avoid those same pitfalls with your help, Lord, not our own. And hopefully through that process, Lord, become stronger together, more godly together in an effort to make, uh, to be, not to put too fine a point on it, a city on a hill, Lord, just like Jerusalem was intended to be for those around us that are dying to hear, literally dying to hear a joyful noise, dying to know the truth, the truth that we know. Thank you, Lord, for this time together. Thank you for this time of study. It's in your son's name I pray.